Good morning. Please open your Bibles to John chapter 20. And by, the, by the end of the message, we'll have read this whole chapter, but I, I want to begin with the first 14 verses. So as you're finding your place there in John 20, if you would please stand with me and we'll read, we'll read these first 14 verses and then pray and ask for the Lord to bless our time in the Word this morning. John 20, beginning in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Let's pray. Father, it's a wonderful thing to be in this church this morning. And I thank you that here every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Because we talk about the gospel all the time. We talk about the resurrection every week and we never lay it aside. And we know, Lord, that that is by your grace. We thank you for that. And yet we thank you for this special day on the calendar, Resurrection Sunday. We have an occasion now to look closely at this wonderful event. Father, would you please help us to see our lives in light of it, rather than trying to see it in light of our lives. We need your help, Lord, to think rightly this morning pray that your spirit would use his word to open our minds and hearts to believe and to live according to the words that Jesus speaks in this chapter. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. I have a confession to make. This is... 
my 35th Resurrection Sunday as a believer. But many of those Resurrection Sundays, particularly as an adult even, I have felt somewhat disconnected from what the people around me were celebrating. I've always realized that I was supposed to be excited and I've, I've realized how important the, the resurrection is to my own salvation and to, to all of Christianity. But if I was being honest, there were years where it felt somewhat irrelevant to the circumstances of my life at the time. And I've been in the church long enough to know that I'm not unique or special. So I'm, I'm guessing that if I have ever felt that way, other people have too. And there may be those of you here this morning who are feeling that way this morning. You just feel disconnected from all of this. There are people in this room this morning who've been worshiping freely and who are, are genuinely excited about the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. But, but you, if you're being honest, you know it's important, but somehow it doesn't seem pertinent to what's going on in your life right now. And again, if, if you're feeling that way right now, I, I've been there. What does the resurrection have to do with my everyday life? Jesus is going to give us a bit of a different perspective this morning in this chapter. Perhaps it's not that the resurrection is irrelevant to our lives, but maybe we've been living lives that are irrelevant to the resurrection. In other words, maybe we've allowed our lives to become about things that they shouldn't be about if we really believe that Jesus died and was raised from the dead. The risen Jesus has three conversations in John chapter 20, and in those three conversations, he tells us who we are and what we're to be about and what is to be the foundation of our lives, and every one of those things is tied directly to the fact that he has just been raised from the dead. And that means that the resurrection is the most relevant thing in the world to a believer. So if I'm, if I'm living the kind of life that Jesus points to here in John 20, I'll find that the resurrection has everything to do with everything about me. The resurrection is why I am who I am. It's why I do what I do. It's why I believe what I believe. It's, it's even why I feel what I feel. And maybe I shouldn't be trying to accommodate the resurrection to my life, but rather I should be accommodating my life to the resurrection. I think that's what Paul's getting at in 2 Corinthians 5.15 when he writes, He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That Jesus died and was raised from the dead to give us spiritual life, not so that we could continue living for ourselves, but for him. So that our lives would be about something completely different, not just than what they were before, but different than what the world is doing all around us. And that new way of life is what we're going to refer to as a resurrection life this morning. A resurrection life. It's a life lived in light of that empty tomb. Now, we're not going to look at every detail of this chapter. Those of you who, who are members here and regular attenders, you know how I typically preach. But we're focusing this morning 
almost exclusively on the things that Jesus says in this chapter. So if I don't address a particular detail that you're interested in this chapter, please know I'm every bit as frustrated as you are. And one of these years, we may come back to John chapter 20 and spend a couple of months on it. But this morning, we're, we're, we're buzzing through the whole thing. I'm not going to say anything about the first 14 verses, and it tears me up, but we're, we're just going to have to all survive, okay? We're, we're paying close attention to what Jesus says in these three conversations. And the first thing that he tells us about this resurrection life is this, a resurrection life carries a new identity, and that identity is sons and daughters of Almighty God. A resurrection life carries a new identity, sons and daughters of God. The most personal question that you can ask anybody to really get at what makes them tick is, what's your identity? Or if you, or if you want to use less nerdy language, just who are you? And some people may answer that question by talking about what they do for a living. I'm a doctor or whatever. Or they might, they might answer that question by talking about their family. I'm a mother of three. Or they might talk about what they like to do with their spare time. I'm a gardener. And all of those things are great. They, they certainly are important details to, to our lives. But for somebody who is a partaker of the resurrection life, are those things the appropriate answer to that question, what's your identity? There is something that is more central to our identity than those details. And Jesus gets at it beginning in verse 15. Look at verse 15 with me. Jesus said to her, he's speaking to Mary Magdalene, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbi, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now we're going to focus mainly on verse 17, particularly the second half. And, and we're about to see just how important context is to understanding the Scriptures, okay? The larger context. Back in chapter 15, Jesus said to His disciples, No longer do I call you servants, but I've called you friends. For a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For everything that the Father has said to me, I've made known to you. Okay? That's in chapter 15. And we, we, when we were back there, we, we looked at what a big deal that was. That's changing status from slave to friend. It's an enormous jump for the disciples. From slave to friend. And because of that passage in chapter 15, we know, we're intended to notice He's calling them something completely different now. He no longer even calls them friends. On this side of the cross in the empty tomb, what does he call them? Brothers. Go tell my brothers, he says. And likewise, previously, before the empty tomb, Jesus referred to God as the Father or my Father, but never as the disciples' Father. Never once did he call them your Father to the disciples because of our sin prior to the cross. God could only be a righteous, wrathful judge to us. But because of Christ's atonement for sin and His resurrection from the dead, through faith we're forgiven. And then in this 
inexplicable act of grace, he goes beyond forgiving us of our sin and does something that he didn't have to do to forgive us for our sin. He goes beyond it and adopts us into his family so that we become sons and daughters of God and Christ is our brother. He no longer calls us friend, but God is our father and Christ is our brother. That should be the first thing that comes to our mind when we think about our identity. There's a a famous Hollywood actor. If I named his name, everybody in this room would know exactly who I'm talking about. But he's from Dayton, Ohio. Okay? His dad still lives in Dayton. And if you're in his dad's presence for 20 seconds or less, you will know that he is this guy's dad because he'll tell you. My sister used to work at a restaurant in Dayton that this dad would frequent all the time. My sister has heard this guy on dozens of occasions introduce himself to strangers as so-and-so's dad. That's just how he introduces himself. I was at a movie theater in Dayton, in the bathroom, and I heard somebody saying, oh, this such-and-such movie was great. Another voice, not, not tied to that conversation, interjects, oh, my daughter won the Academy Award for that movie. My son is so-and-so. That same dad that my sister's heard introduce himself as this guy's dad. I mean, this guy can't go to the bathroom without telling people, that's my son. Only if you ask him directly will he tell you what he does for a living, what he enjoys doing with his spare time, anything else about his past. All, all that stuff is just details to this guy. His identity is that he is the father of this famous actor. Now, think, think about this for a second. We, what, what was our identity? The most important thing about us, the truest thing about us before Christ saved us. We were formerly hell-bound slaves of sin. Eternally speaking, most important thing about us. But now, because of the cross and resurrection, we are sons and daughters of Almighty God and Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, is our brother. The resurrection does that. The resurrection tells us that. How could that not be the first thing that comes to mind when people ask us about ourselves? How could that not be central to our identity? Listen, if if we wonder about the relevance of the resurrection, it can only be because we have an identity problem. We don't know who we are. there, There may be people in the room right now struggling with an identity crisis. Who, who am I? And maybe you're, you're a young person wondering, what am I going to be? Well, let me suggest to you that the only answer to that question that has any kind of eternal significance is this. I have been raised with Christ. God is my Father. Jesus is my brother. That is who I am. Everything else is just details. And if you want to answer that question in any other way, you will be wandering for the rest of your life. The world would have you to believe that your identity is an inherently self-focused thing and your primary purpose is to cultivate an identity that makes much of you. How many times have you heard something like this? Make your mark on the world so that you'll be remembered. That's a hellish lie that is the quickest way to a wasted life. Which brings us to 
the next thing that Jesus would say about a resurrection life. The next thing that Jesus would have us to know about a resurrection life is this. It's dedicated to the right purpose, which is Jesus' mission. A resurrection life is dedicated to the right purpose, Jesus' mission. Not my mission, Jesus' mission. Now listen, identity and purpose in life are inextricably bound. And so if my identity is all about me, then my purpose in life is going to be all about me. And here's the thing about that. When I die then, what I've lived my life for dies with me. But if my identity is in Christ, then my mission in life is all about Christ. And when I die, everything I've lived for lives on. You want to live a life of true significance? Flush down the toilet this worldly nonsense that your identity and significance, your mission in life is all about you and adopt what Jesus is saying in this passage, okay? Now here, Jesus is saying, hey, look, I'm going away, but my mission isn't going to stop. My brothers are going to continue it. Look, Look beginning at verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. All right, now we're focusing mainly on verses 21, 22, 23. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. We've we've seen this already in John. The Father sent the Son to do His work. Now the Son sends His brothers to do His work. Okay, so all Jesus is saying is, my, my mission doesn't go away because I'm going away. You, my brothers, you're going to continue my mission, the mission that my father gave me to do. I'm passing on to you. Now, I'm going to skip over what, the, what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit in verse 22. Now, let's all just try not to hyperventilate about that, okay? Lord willing, I will address that on the blog this week, okay? How do we make sense of this in light of Pentecost and all of that, okay? What I want to say about it right now is that Jesus is indicating that the Holy Spirit empowers us to do this mission that He's given us to do. I'm giving you this crazy mission. Just like back in chapter 14, the works that I do, you also are going to do. The Holy Spirit empowers you to do it. What about verse 23? If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld. Now, if you know the Gospels well, your mind's probably going to be called to, to Matthew 20, I'm sorry, Matthew 16, where, where Jesus talks about the keys of the kingdom. Very similar passage. And if you want to know in detail what Jesus is saying here, I would say get on our website and go to those sermons on Matthew 16, which would have been around the spring of 2013. Okay? Right now, I'm just going to put it into a nutshell for you, what he's saying here in verse 23. Jesus is giving his church authority to carry out his mission. He's essentially saying, look, when you act as the church, when you act, I'm acting. You're acting on my behalf. You have my authority to do this mission. And so he sends us to do his mission, but he doesn't send us alone with no power and no authority. He gives us the Holy Spirit to empower us, and he gives us his authority to carry it out. What a caring Jesus this is. We've we've seen it already in chapters 13 through 15, right? He's just so kind. 
But what, what is this mission that he's given us to do? Building his church by evangelizing the lost and edifying the saved. That's Jesus' mission. Building the church by evangelizing the lost and edifying the saved. That is the work of a resurrection life. That's what my life is to be all about. And not because I'm a pastor, but because I'm a Christian. That's what your life is to be all about because you're a Christian. The resurrection is what validated that order. Without the resurrection, there's no church to build, according to 1 Corinthians 15. So when people ask us, when people ask us, what, what, what do you do? How, how do we typically answer that question? We'll, we'll talk about our vocation most of the time, right? I, I do this or I do this. You, you want to watch somebody squirm and open a door for the gospel at the same time, go over to 2 Corinthians 5.20 and borrow Paul's words. Next time somebody asks you what you do, say, I'm an ambassador of Jesus Christ and I implore people on his behalf to be reconciled to God. That only feels weird because we don't think biblically. Because that's the most accurate answer to the question. If our identity and mission is calibrated to the resurrection, as it should be. The resurrection has put a mission on us. Go in my power and authority to build my church. It's what my life is to be about. It's what your life is to be about. Now listen, do you think that there's any way that, that anybody ever had a, a conversation with the Apostle Paul and came away from that thinking primarily, wow, I just met a tent maker. It might have come up that he makes tents. It might have. But what do you think they came away knowing about him? This guy is nuts about a, a man named Jesus who he says died and was raised from the dead. So what does Paul say to the Corinthians? He says, I purposed to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. That's, that's all he knows. Tent making was a detail. That's how he paid the bills so that he could do what Christ commissioned him to do, which is build the church by evangelizing the lost, edifying the saved. And guess what? Paul is not unique. We all have that same mission. Why should we see our lives differently than he did? Why ought we not answer the question the way that he would have? See, the resurrection reminds me that even in my workplace, whether, whether I'm a mechanic or a doctor or a nurse, if I'm a stay-at-home mom or a school teacher or a student, wherever I find myself, my mission is to live the resurrection life by building the church through evangelizing the lost, edifying the saved. That's my mandate stamped by the resurrection. Third, a resurrection life is built on the right foundation, the Scriptures. It's built on the right foundation, the Scriptures. So look with me beginning at verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. 
Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's so important, really. That we realize Jesus is not saying to Thomas, Thomas, you poor fool, why can't you be like the other disciples who believed without seeing? Why can't you be like them? You're the only one who had to, 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 to see in order to believe. Why, why, why isn't Jesus saying that? Because they all believed by seeing. Everyone in this story saw by believing, including Mary. If you go back to the beginning of the story, Mary sees this stone rolled away and she assumes the grave's been robbed. Even after having a conversation with two angels, she turns around and sees Jesus and thinks that he stole the body. It's only after Jesus says her name that she, said, she realizes he's been raised. She saw and then believed. John, who describes himself in the text as the one whom Jesus loved, he's the same way. He looked into the tomb and saw those grave clothes. That's how he knew. When, when a grave has been robbed, the, the grave robbers don't strip the body and leave the, the grave clothes there. It's not time efficient. So he sees the grave clothes. There's, that's how he knows. Jesus has been raised from dead. He saw and then he believed. That's what John is saying about himself in verse 9 when he says, For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. In other words, John is pointing out about himself that he believed by seeing rather than simply by believing the Scriptures. What about the other disciples? In verse 20, he shows that they were only glad after Jesus showed him his hands and his side. In other words, they believed after they had seen. So Thomas is not some jerk or, or, or faith deficient guy because he had to see in order to believe. Everyone in the story believed by seeing. Everyone. Jesus is simply preparing us for the time when people aren't going to see him and are still going to be called to believe. Jesus teaches here, it's better to believe based upon what's been written. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Look at verse 31. We'll get, we'll get to verses 31 and 32 a little bit later, but I want you to look at 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus' interaction with Thomas is all about preparing us to believe based upon what's been written in the Scriptures. And, and there's something wonderful about, about what Jesus says in verse 29. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. There's a couple of Greek words for blessed. This one means happy. Happy are those who have not seen and yet believed. Happy are those who just believe what's been written. Now, obviously, Jesus has got no problem providing evidence for those who want it. There's all kinds of evidence that Jesus lived, that he died, that he was raised from the dead. But Jesus is saying, look, there's a better way of arriving at certainty than empirical evidence. Happy are those who believe what the Scriptures say and build their lives there. I'm reminded of that old hymn, How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent Word. There's no better foundation for life, no greater source of peace, no, no greater reason for happiness and joy than what we read about Jesus in the Bible. And blessed, happy are those who take it all by faith. Listen, if, if, if the Scriptures are our foundation, 
if we, if we grab onto what Jesus is saying here, if the, if the scriptures are our lifeblood, our foundation, there's never any struggle to find the relevance of the resurrection. Why? Because if the scriptures are our lifeblood, our lives will be calibrated to the gospel. Because of the resurrection, because of the scriptures, we understand our only reason for hope, our only reason for living, the only reason for happiness is because the Savior who died has been raised. And the kind of happiness that Jesus talks about here, happy are those who believe this. This isn't a mind over matter kind of happiness. This isn't a stick your head in the sand kind of happiness. It's not just that we, we think about the resurrection and it makes all of our problems go away. And it's not even that we just think about the resurrection and it helps us to ignore our problems. But understanding the significance of the resurrection helps us to think rightly about our problems. Puts our problems in perspective. Here's a little bit of perspective that the scriptures give us. With the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says, if, if Jesus has not been raised, our faith is in vain and we're dead in our sins. We have no hope. You see, our hope is not, the scriptures would tell us, our hope is not in our current circumstances being worked out. But our hope is that when we die, when all of these problems that we think are the biggest thing in the world right now, when all of these are gone and we're dead, we're going to be raised to be with Christ forevermore. That is helpful perspective on a day when all I can see is just my problems. But here's something that's even more helpful on a day-to-day basis, I would say. Here's, here's something from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 and following. Ephesians 1, 18 and following. There Paul writes that the, the power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in us, equipping us to live the life that God has called us to, believe, to, to live. And Paul likes that idea so much that he doesn't leave it there in Ephesians 1. He picks it up again at the end of Ephesians 3. And he says, Now to him who is able to do far beyond all that we could ask or even think, according to the power that is at work within us. This God who can do anything, how does he do it? He does it with power that's already at work in us. Unbelievable. The the power that raised Christ from the dead, resurrection power, according to Paul, you believe the scriptures, don't you? The power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in us. It's at our disposal to help us with these things. So all of the things that I need in order to cope with my health problems, my financial difficulties, my relationship issues, you fill in the blank, whatever I need in order to deal with those things I have because Christ was raised from the dead and that power is now at work in me. What could possibly be more relevant than that on a daily basis? That's what the scriptures point me to. The scriptures teach me that and a resurrection life is founded on the scriptures. Now, we come to perhaps the most important part here. Fourth thing. A resurrection life comes through faith in Christ. It comes through faith in Christ. Look at verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Now, this is the whole point of the book of John. Everything that John's recorded up to this point, including the resurrection, is intended to lead us to believe in Jesus unto 
life. A life given by the resurrection and informed by the resurrection. Now, almost everything that I've said up until this point has been aimed at those who already believe in Jesus, okay? But I don't want to make any assumptions this morning like that just because everybody's here, everybody believes in Jesus. Because it may be the case that there are people here who don't. Or maybe there are people here who aren't sure. Or there may be people here who at some point in your life, you you prayed a prayer, but since then you have not felt or lived any differently. So for a minute, I want to talk to those who don't believe or who may not believe, okay? Please understand that if you are not a disciple of Jesus Christ, your biggest problem is not an inability to see the relevance of the resurrection to your everyday life. Your biggest problem is that your sin condemns you before God. You are an object of His holy wrath. And when you die, you will spend eternity in a literal conscious torment of hell. That's your biggest problem. And it's a doozy. And so many people in our culture want to make Jesus out to be this live and let live pansy with absolutely no no stomach for judgment. But listen, Jesus talked way more about hell than he did about heaven. And nobody in the Bible warned more about hell than Jesus did. Jesus warns us about hell. Your sin condemns you. And listen, there's nothing that you can do to change that in yourself. You cannot do enough good deeds to cover up your past sins. It doesn't work that way. You you cannot just stop sinning now and think that you'll accumulate enough good deeds that it outweighs those others. Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, there is none good. No one seeks for God. There is none righteous, not even one. You can't earn your way out of this mess. And it is a mess. So that's all the bad news. That's bad news. It's the worst news imaginable. But here's the good news. Though you can't get yourself out of this mess... Jesus can, only Jesus can make you right with God. How did he do that? Well, he came to the earth and lived the perfectly obedient life that you never could. He died on the cross, bearing the wrath of God on behalf of sinners. And he rose from the dead, proving that his sacrifice on the cross was sufficient to pay for the sins of men. And so now, when a sinner repents and trusts in Christ, they receive his perfect record imputed to their account and forgiveness of their sins because of his death on the cross. You see, repentance and faith in Christ is the only way to be saved from impending doom. It's the, the only way. Now, now, churches all over the country this morning are filled with people who think that they're saved because they, at one point in their life, prayed a prayer that some have called a, a sinner's prayer. But the Bible nowhere says that if you want to be saved, just say these words. Rather, the Bible says, repent and trust in Jesus. That's the right way to understand verses like Romans 10.9, which reads... If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. See, confessing that Jesus is Lord 
is not analogous to just saying magic words that turn you into a Christian. That confession must be an expression of your heart. It must be true that you're saying Christ is my Lord. That's the nature of repentance. Repentance is is where a sinner turns away from sin, turns away from being Lord of one's own life, and surrenders to Christ. You see, a repentant heart says, I I see the ugliness of my sin. I hate it. I just want Jesus. And merely saying the words, Christ is Lord, does not make it so. Repentance, turning from sin, surrendering to Christ, makes it so. Scriptures call us to repent and trust in Him alone. Trust not in our own good works, not in some prayer that we've prayed, not in the fact that we've gone to church all our lives, not in the fact that our parents are saved, but we trust in Jesus Christ alone and His atoning death on the cross to satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf. Jesus and His blood alone is my plea before God Almighty. That is saving faith. Now, How do I know if I've been saved from the wrath to come? Many people would would answer that question by saying, well, did you ever pray a prayer asking God to save you? Listen, that, that way of finding assurance is completely foreign to the Bible. You won't find that. But rather, the Scriptures would tell you, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith, meaning look at your life to see if it shows fruit of repentance. Am I I different than I was before I prayed that prayer, however long ago that was? Have I grown in the fruit of the Spirit over time? Do I long for the things of Christ in in a way that I didn't before? The, The Bible would tell me, that if my life does not bear the fruit of repentance, I have no reason to be confident that I'm saved. And Paul says of the person who confesses with their mouths, but their lives do not show the evidence of their faith, he says of them in Titus 1.16, they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. Here's the good news. It's not too late. It's not too late. And there's no better day to repent and trust in Jesus than on Resurrection Sunday. And if you do, according to verse 31, you'll have life in His name. A changed life, a new identity, a a right purpose, a firm foundation in Jesus Christ. If you have any questions about what you've heard this morning, please come and talk to one of the elders after the service. We'll all be available either in here or in the foyer. You may be comfortable talking to somebody else that you know in the room, and that's fine too. This room is filled with people who can answer your questions. But here's here's the key thing. Do not leave this place with unanswered questions. And do not leave this place without repenting and trusting in Jesus. This is the most important thing in the world. The resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most relevant event in history. He is the only way to be saved. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you have loved us with an everlasting love. We thank you that you have demonstrated your love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Lord, we thank you that we have a Savior who who not only died, but was raised from the dead to demonstrate to everyone, all the, the, the angelic beings in the heavenly places, everyone in the world, demonstrate to them that your wrath has been satisfied by the death of Jesus. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that we have a risen Savior. Father, some of us came in wondering about the relevance of all of this. I pray that Lord, you would just help us to recalibrate our thinking, that we would align our, our minds and hearts with what Jesus has said in John chapter 20, that we would not look to, to find the relevance of the resurrection in light of our lives, but that we would move our lives toward the resurrection, that our identity would be found there, that, that our, our mission in life would be found there, that our firm foundation would be found there, would you move us in such a way that we, 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 we're all about Jesus and His mission as found in the Scriptures so that there never comes another day where we wonder, what does the resurrection have to do with any of this? And Father, if there are those here this morning who don't know You, who've not repented and trusted in Jesus, Father, I would beg that You would be so kind as to crush them under the weight of their sin right now. Bring crushing conviction upon them. Help them to see the hopelessness of their situation. And then, Lord, open their eyes to see the beauty of Christ, that He is the only way. Please grant them repentance and faith that they might be saved on this Resurrection Sunday. We pray these things in Jesus' name.